welcome listeners. You are tuned into the official podcast at the Joseph Franey Center for Public Policy, Policy for the People. My name is Mia Heck, and I'm the Vice President for External Affairs with the Rainey Center. And we are pleased that you have tuned in today to this podcast episode on redistricting. The Rainey Center is a public policy research organization and leadership community founded on the values of equality, freedom, and a more perfect union. Our namesake is the former Congressman Joseph Rainey, who was born enslaved and was the first Black American to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. We're a place that fosters dialogue on actionable solutions to America's challenges while amplifying the voices of women, minorities, and mavericks in public policymaking. To learn more about us, we hope you will visit us at www.rainycenter.org. With that, I'm pleased to introduce our distinguished panel of subject matter experts. Mr. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and is known for being widely published in his writing on law, public policy, and regulation. He has advised many public officials from town councils to the White House, and is active in civic affairs in his home state of Maryland, having been named by Governor Larry Hogan as co-chair of commissions aimed at ending the practice of gerrymandering. He is often interviewed for his expertise on elections and redistricting law. He is often interviewed for his expertise on elections and redistricting law. Our next panelist is Mr. Misha Saitlin, who's a partner with Troutman Pepper, where he leads the firm's national appellate and Supreme Court practice. As a nationally renowned appellate advocate, Mr. Saitlin has successfully led several of the most high-profile appeals in the country, including having argued and prevailed before the United States Supreme Court in Gill versus Whitford, one of the most significant redistricting cases in decades. And finally, we're joined by Mr. Chris Perkins, who is a partner with polling and research company Ragnar Research. Chris is an expert in quantitative and qualitative analysis having conducted and analyzed survey data for over a decade on behalf of Republican candidates. In the 2000s, Chris ran the Independent Expenditure Unit for the Republican National Committee, overseeing U.S. House and Senate IEs in multiple states. Before his time at the RNC, Perkins was the Director of Americans for Republican Majority PAC, the leadership PAC of former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. So going into the program, as our listeners may know, The U.S. Census Bureau announced each decennial census numbers earlier this year, which show the resident population of the United States. Apportionment is the process of dividing the 435 memberships or seats in the U.S. House of Representatives among 50 states. This program will go through key issues affecting the redistricting process in states and across the U.S., As we understand, the redistricting process in each state is governed by different frameworks. Mr. Olson, could you, from your perspective, touch on the different processes and the importance of map drawing and communities of interest? Well, thank you, Mia. Every state handles redistricting differently from every other state. So I'm only going to give a broad overview, but the traditional way in which it's handled is that the state legislature and the governor, in some combination, propose and adopt lines both for the U.S. House districts in the state and for the districts by which the state legislature is districted. So a lot of states continue to do it that way, but other states under 
pressure from reformers who think that there's too much self-interest in letting people draw their own districts have moved to sometimes bipartisan commissions in which, by law, both parties are represented and can therefore negotiate often on how they'd like the, the lines to draw. Sometimes commissions with independent third parties, such as judges or neutrals of various sorts. And in several states, particularly in the West, so-called independent citizen commissions in which the power to redistrict moves over to a bunch of amateurs and they draw the lines. And there are a bunch of different variations. Iowa has its own system in which the Legislative Services Bureau of the legislature draws up lines. Uh, But those are the basics. Some states have advisory commissions which can propose the lines, but it's the legislature that actually gets to make the decision. Great. Uh, Chris, you have a unique perspective, having been a former map drawer, could you add anything to the different frameworks that states states use? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Mia. I appreciate you having all of us. Yeah, I mean, from, from a framework point of view, it's there. there is a number of kind of like different softwares that different states use. The biggest difference is basically the, the VRA, Voting Rights Act states versus the non. You know, the, the Voting Rights Act states are going to have a, a lot for, for those that are, you know, in which the legislatures are drawing the maps or some variations of legislature, governor, some some or some sort of, you know, elected board. There There's a lot more nuances that go into to ensuring that Voting Rights Act data is included versus the non-Voting Rights Act data in, in other states. That was the, what my experience was, was with the, the biggest difference on, on looking at the different, I, I would call it software platforms, um, listing VRA data versus non-VRA data. That would probably be the, the biggest difference. Um, the census is a whole other story I think we'll, we'll talk about uh, a little bit later, but that was the biggest difference kind of from a macro side, I know. It's just the different, the different platforms with including non-VRA data in non-VRA states and VRA data in those particular states. Interesting. Mr. Saitlin, I would actually like to move on to another piece to outline what's happening in the redistricting space right now in the U.S. Would you be able to go through what the landscape is uh, with the courts and touch on any anything that you might think is going to help the audience understand where we are right now. All right. Thank you so much, Mia. So every decennial, there is a large amount of litigation or redistricting in the various states. There are claims that are brought in states under the state constitution and state law, whether it's to challenge an ongoing an adopted map or to try to get the state courts to draw a replacement map if the legislature and the governor can get a, cannot get on the same page. Further, there is often uh, sometimes even more litigation on the federal side, challenging the redistricting maps either the prior one or the new one, on one of several federal grounds. Uh, One ground on which the maps are often challenged in in terms of the federal law is for failure of one person, one vote. That is to say that because of population movements, the the districts no longer have equal population or within a certain bound at the state legislative district. So that's one category of challenge. Another category of challenges is often brought against congressional and state level districts is for violation of section two of the Voting Rights Act, which is failure to create majority minority districts and things of that sort. The flip side of that is there's also often challenges brought under the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution for taking race into account too much. Those are called Shaw challenges, and those are also often brought in in, in federal court. Now, there are two categories of challenges to uh, legislative districts and congressional districts that have been brought in prior to Senate 
materials that will not be available in this decennial at the federal level. First, there was for a long time challenges in many jurisdictions under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act uh, under preclearance provisions. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down the preclearance coverage formula a couple of years ago, and Congress has not adjusted that formula. So there will not be any Section 5 challenges uh, this time around, uh, unless Congress, of course, acts, which does not appear uh, poised to in the near future. Uh, second, in the last decennial, there was this move to have uh, a justiciable political gerrymandering challenge to congressional and state assembly districts. Uh, the Supreme Court has since held a couple of years ago that political gerrymandering is not justiciable under the federal constitution. So uh, we will not be seeing a federal political gerrymandering challenges brought in uh, in this cycle. There will be in some states, state political gerrymandering challenges that could perhaps uh, be attempted. Very good. Thank you for that. Mr. Olson or Mr. Perkins, do either of you have thoughts on best practices to keep lines being drawn constitutionally by legislatures instead of by courts? Well, I'll jump in. The answer to that is going to differ by state because the states have different requirements in their constitutions. But there are some principles of good districting that you can kind of prescribe everywhere and which will at least not be illegal and sometimes still be required by the state. One of them is compactness, which is districts ought to look more like circles or squares or turtles and less like flying dragons or ketchup spills. And that's one of the big things people, no matter how new they are to the subject, one of the first things they notice is that some states have very non-compact districts, typically because they want to accomplish some political objective. There's also respect for the boundaries of smaller subdivisions like counties, for example. And again, uh, states with very severe gerrymanders, like my own state of Maryland, We'll have districts that crisscross county boundaries a lot. States with less gerrymandered arrangement will typically respect them more. And some states require that, others don't. But beyond that, you get to things that are inherently more subjective, like keeping together communities of interest. It's a term you hear all the time. Sometimes you can kind of agree, for, you know, farmers often like to be in a district with other farmers because it means they'll get a representative who cares about farm issues. But once you push it much beyond that, people find it hard to agree on what is a community of interest. What I would say best practice from the map drawing is, is make sure you have a lawyer looking over your shoulder. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I noticed as a, as a non-attorney um, having to draw these maps is you get a lot of interest, political interest right in your face. And the mistake that I've seen some states make is basically not allowing whoever is physically drawing the maps to have a voting rights expert or redistricting expert attorney with them when it is being done. And let's just draw them politically because we can handle it. The best practices, as we're talking about, that's those are typically the ones that are going to get thrown into the courts. And I can tell you, it was always in my best interest, the state's best interest that I was doing these in to ensure that every time I, I was producing kind of the map lines is making sure that the legal experts were watching to ensure that we're in compliant with the law. Because the last thing we want is for that map to go to before some three-judge panel or whatever it is, and they draw the lines because that's going to be very bad in general if you're getting judges drawing the maps. So uh, you know, kind of to just to, to finish that is if you're in the map drawing room, make sure you've got an attorney present <laughs> at all times, just to make sure that political interest and the legal interest can Merge, but it is very important to have that map, you know, pretty perfect when it comes to the legal side. There's, you'd, you'd be, you'd be floored to know what kind of mistakes are made with, without that being done. 
Absolutely. And that's a good segue. Mr. Saitlin, I'd love for you to comment on what is gerrymandering and what isn't gerrymandering and what have the courts said about that? Well, the the concept of gerrymandering goes literally back to the nation's founding, at least political gerrymandering, a combined name of a salamander and an early founding father. That is because Elbridge Gerry, uh, who was at the Constitutional Convention, was, was the governor of Massachusetts, and he signed off on legislative districts that a cartoonist likened to a salamander. They were snaking up the, uh, northern Massachusetts. And so the cartoonists called this a, a gerrymander. Uh, and, and so there has been been a lot of objections to these gerrymanders or gerrymanders throughout the nation's history. But generally, as a, as a matter of federal law, this hasn't been brought successfully to the federal to federal courts. Uh, there have been more and more lawsuits brought starting in the in the 80s, but those had all failed until the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately determined that this issue is not a more uh, litigated and a more uh, meaningful uh, judicially form of gerrymander, something called a racial gerrymander. Uh, that's when one draws district lines to uh, favor or harm a particular race or a particular race says uh, that has been held to be unconstitutional and many a map has been struck down for as being a, a, a racial gerrymander. So a lot of times you'll hear, you know, in the popular press, you'll usually hear about political gerrymandering. That usually doesn't go anywhere uh, in, in court, whereas racial gerrymandering, which you'll hear a little less about, is a really uh, robust doctrine uh, uh, under which many court maps have been struck down. Very good. And Mr. Olson, with your unique role as the co-chair of commissions on gerrymandering in Maryland, do you have anything to add? Well, I agree that the term gerrymander, even though it grabs everyone, doesn't have a legal definition. And beyond that, fairness, although everyone has an idea on what maps are fair, it's very hard to pin down agreement on what fairness means. In redistricting, that can mean to some people proportional representation, where if one party has 60% of the votes in a state, they should get 60% of the House districts. To someone else, it could mean that a lot of districts are made competitive and are in danger of flipping one way or the other in an election. For other its compactness and respect in county boundaries. But we have these debates because, in part because we don't agree, but also in part because there's a lot of discontent with something I brought up earlier, which is that if you let the people who've got, whose self-interest is at stake do it, and no offense to state legislators, I love state legislators, I know many of them, but hand them the pen to draw their own district lines, or maybe the pen to draw the lines of house districts that they would like to run for in a few years, and even an angel can't resist. So that's why there is this search. And if you look around the world, as far as I can tell, every major country that has used geographical districts for its legislature or its parliament has faced gerrymandering issues at one point or another. And different countries have taken their time to address the gerrymandering problem, but most of them have gotten around to it. And these days, America is getting around to that same debate. Moving on, there has been recent and significant relocation of households from some states to others by individuals which is directly reflective in 2020 census and reapportionment. For instance, and if you will bear with me, uh, following this decennial census, states that are losing a seat in the House of Representatives are California, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and the state of New York. The states that are gaining a seat in the House of Representatives are Oregon, Montana, Colorado, North Carolina, and Florida, and Texas will gain a historic two seats in the House this decennial. The rest of the states will have no change in the number of districts that are being drawn or redrawn, respectively. 
I will pose this to the group. What challenges will states like Texas and California be facing as they redraw their maps to accommodate their new makeup? Uh, Chris, would you like to take a stab at that first? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think a lot of the challenges are, is is going to be, you know, from a standpoint is is managing growth from from a non-legal point of view, from the more political map drawing point of view. Um, you know, there are clear areas, especially in states like Texas and Florida, that that are growing and likely will continue to grow. And it will be the wherewithal within those state legislative bodies to ensure, you know, is is the new seat or seats going to go there? Are you going to manage the legislative lines in the growth areas? Or are you just going to expand rural areas? And you, know, you just never know. I think a lot of it, um, is, is basically from a more maptitude in, for lack of a better term, is understanding where the growth patterns are in these more growing states. The census tract this time may be one, but if you're, if you're not managing it well down the road, you may have some districts that get out of whack 10 years later. Um, so a lot of it is just basically managing growth or at least understanding where the growth centers are uh, and making sure that those are properly accounted for. That's kind of the bigger picture way to, to do it. Every state is going to be different, like we've talked about. Yeah, it's essentially just, you know, knowing where those growth spots are and ensuring that you're, you're, you're managing those from when you're putting together your lines. Mr. Saitlin, I would love to hear from you on this about challenges that states like Texas and California may be facing. Yeah, so as I discussed earlier, there are a lot of various legal um, constraints on uh, states drawing legislative districts, uh, including congressional districts, uh, even though there are two that have been taken off the table, there's a slew that each state will face. And, you know, just as importantly, there is a lot of money on both sides to challenge map, uh, especially in this redistricting cycle, because the stakes are so high. So uh, that's challenging enough to do when you have congressional districts and the uh, the number of them remaining the same. There, at least you have the option of doing a least changes map if you so choose, which might limit some of your risk. But if you lose a seat or you gain a seat, then you have to do usually a more significant change. And when you make significant changes in the face of a robust number of legal doctrines, which are sometimes intention uh, that are um, imposed on you and, and, uh, and a certainty that you will get sued from at least one side and probably from both sides, uh, you have a, a high risk situation where getting counsel involved uh, during the map drawing process is essential. Uh, if one is if one's map is to sur- survive a judicial in- invalidation. Mr. Olson, would you like to comment? As Chris and Misha say it, you get more interesting challenges in states where the number of house seats has changed. And where it's gone up, it's intrinsically a less tense process. The incumbents will usually be less worried that there will be no district left for them if a new district or two are being added. And people will get into the process wanting either the recognition of a growing part of the state or a growing demographic in Colorado, where there's an independent commission. They've announced a proposed map which would create a district uh, at the request of Hispanic groups that would be a center for possible Hispanic uh, candidates in the future. Um, things are very different where the number 
of districts is shrinking, at which point you've got a musical chairs type thing where not all the incumbents are going to win. One common solution is for the majority party, when there is one, to simply announce that they're going to take the seat away from whatever the minority party is. Uh, some states, of course, are not under one party control. And either way, it's, it's not a good thing, but it can quickly become a matter of personalities because it can quickly become like that, that parlor game where you have to decide who to eject from the room or even who to murder, depending on how the game is described. Earlier this year, the U.S. Census Bureau announced that due to challenges caused by the coronavirus pandemic, providing full and complete data tables to states for their map drawing will be delayed, and states should expect to receive those tables in mid to late August, significantly shortening their map drawing timeline. Could each of you comment on the challenges that will bring to candidate filing deadlines and early primaries for the 2022 cycle? Chris, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I, I, it's this is a, I will admit from a from a uh, former map drawer's point of view, the, the delay in the census is is got to be frustrating. You can do plenty of back of the napkin stuff right now, but until you have that hard data in hand, your your hands are really tied. So um, I'll, I'll talk about uh, Mia, which. You you were talking about a second ago and the, delaying the filing deadlines. I, I would kind of pose it this way. There is one silver lining piece in it being delayed, especially among states that are either gaining or losing or being drawn by legislators. I mean, one of the things that is, I wouldn't say, but it's on the map drawer to manage um, is the differentiation of opinion between, say, uh, the congressional delegation, the lower house, the upper house. There's a lot of personalities that, uh, uh, that go into, you know, what the one body wants versus the other body wants what versus what the congressional delegation is lobbying their state legislators for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, doing that in the actual map drawing process is um, difficult. And that's the most time, that's the time frame in which you are prone to mistakes in which Misha and Walter talked about. You don't want to make mistakes, especially from a legal standpoint, because uh, you're going to get sued. The silver lining here is that we've got more time. And that's not necessarily a good thing overall, but I would use it as a point of emphasis to get all of the personalities kind of on board earlier. Even though you don't have the hard data, there is at least the more political conversations that you can have, um, you know, to basically get get on the same page before you go into the process, which is very time consuming and, and, and needs needs legal oversight. So I would say the slowing of the process is frustrating, but it, 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 the plus side is that what we're hoping um, is that we get the political things out of the way before you get into the process. But yes, I mean, the point of your question, I know, Mia, was what does it do to primaries? It will delay them, um, especially early states like Texas, specifically, who has a very early primary. You know, it's going to be very difficult for states that have early primaries to get everything done in a really small window. I mean, you're probably looking at October 1st before um, the states have the data. And normally we're already in the middle of this process. In June, a lot of maps are done. In this case, we don't have a single lick of data anywhere. Um, so it's almost it's almost inevitable. I, I'd, I'd like to believe that we could get it done fast, but it's uh, histor- history tells me otherwise. Um, but it's, it's, in, it's inevitable that we're going to see some states have to delay their primaries, their filing deadlines um, because of the lateness of data. Mr. Saitlin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, the number of challenges and the volume of challenges that the states are never really going to face to either adopted maps or or if there is a a deadlock between the governor and the legislature or as between the legislature and the need for judges to then draw the map. 
uh, is just everything's going to be exacerbated by the fact that you now have a much smaller window. And certainly many states will legislatively move various deadlines to create more breathing room. But in that states that doesn't happen, the the, the large volume of litigation uh, will take place uh, at a a breakneck speed that's rarely been seen in previous cycles. Yes, I noticed um, that Illinois, North Carolina, and Texas all have early primaries in March, and each of those states are facing a change in the number of uh, House seats apportioned to them. Mr. Olson, do you have anything to add? As far as the primaries early next year, we quickly found out that it's not just the date of the primary. You have to work backward to the distribution of absentee ballots to members of the military. That really realistically adds weeks more for uh, having to know what names are going to be on ballots for which localities. So yes, something has to give because there simply isn't enough time, especially if the system doesn't work smoothly and there's an impasse uh, or things have to go to a backup mechanism. The commissions in various states are under their own pressures on this because not only do they have perhaps two months to do something that they would have had eight months to do otherwise, but there are legal deadlines, which some states have already had to request waivers of. And there are also requirements or expectations for public hearings. Our commission uh, would probably be in line to have as many as as 30 or more public hearings in different phases, some of them after the census data were available, but before the proposal of a map, some of them after the proposal of a map. Suddenly, you're talking about doing that in a matter of weeks. Uh, It's especially for volunteer bodies, but really just as much for anyone who's asked to do it. Holding a a different public hearing every day uh, is not how the system is supposed to work. Absolutely. That's extremely time consuming. Well, the last question I have is, is, is an open-ended question for each of you to provide comments on, on what might be something that we haven't touched on quite yet, or if you have any predictions for the 2022 cycle and how the census numbers and reapportionment will affect that. I would love to hear just closing remarks from each of you. And um, let's begin with uh, Chris Perkins. Uh, sure. Thanks, Mia. And the, uh, the uh, let's see, prediction, lots of lawsuits <laughs> uh, on both sides. Uh, there, uh, there, will, there will no doubt. I mean, as we were talking about just a second ago, uh, the, the delayed census data is going to give opportunities for states that don't like their lines drawn by either a commission or the op- opposing political party to use the courts as a means to try and slow the process down. Um, <laughs> there you go. There's an easy prediction. I mean, I, I would just go back and say, you know, the, 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 if there's any advice I give to, um, you know, either legislators or those that are in kind of the process of the map drawing is that, you know, again, it's frustrating. We're all sitting around waiting for the end of September, but use the time to manage the political differences. That's one thing that we've never really had before. And and if you can manage those political differences early, um, then your process um, will be much smoother. And that's easier said than done, I know. Um, But, you know, think through that as you're you're kind of going forward. That's great. Um, Mr. Statelin, how about you go next? So what I'll say is, and with a great confidence, that litigation will continue into the 2022 cycle. You know, as I mentioned, there's going to be uh, the sprint of litigation, uh, maybe a month or two after the census data is released, uh, heading into the primaries. You know, sometimes that will be resolved with an unsatisfactory 
ruling uh, where a court says, well, I can't, I have no, t- not enough time uh, to comfortably change these lines. And, and in other cases, even when the preliminary decision will be made, the legislatures will then respond after the, uh, the, uh, the first, the first uh, set uh, of primaries. So even after 2022, uh, whatever happens with 2022 with the district lines, the litigation will, will continue and it will go through 2022, 2023 and beyond. So the, the first slate of, of litigation heading into 22 is just going to be the appetizer to the, the wholesale litigation that will be uh, conducted under many of these maps, especially the, uh, the maps where it's seen that the, that the delta in the litigation could change uh, uh, congressional district control uh, for a particular party or another. Well said. And Mr. Olson, we'd like to conclude with, with your comments. Let me offer some advice for any non-legislators listening, because we've heard a lot of advice from all three of us for what legislators should be doing. This is the time to take an interest if you don't want to be saddled with illogical, highly politicized district drawing for the next 10 years, because that's how long it takes before you get another shot at this. Go out and testify when there are hearings. Uh, Send in your views about how your lines should locally be drawn to whatever the bodies are. They all take comments. And you may find a receptive ear, not only a particular member of a commission, particular legislator who realizes that dividing a particular neighborhood was a bad idea last time, and and you might convince them not to do it next time. But also later on, if a court reviews it, they will look sometimes at what the public comment has been. They will sometimes uphold things that have been done in response to public comment, for example. And one final thing, remember that this isn't just a statewide process. If your county has geographically districted county council districts, if your city has city council districts that are drawn by geographical districts. You are probably going through exactly the same thing. It can be a tremendous learning area uh, with only a small number of people interested. Uh, They take volunteers. You may find yourself serving on one of these commissions before you know it to redraw the lines for your county. And if you're new to the subject, terrific way to get up to speed and impress your friends by being an expert. And then 10 years from now, really use that information. That's great and important information. Thanks to each of you. And that is all the time that we have for today. The Rainey Center is so incredibly grateful to each uh, Mr. Walter Olson, Mr. Misha Saitlin, and to Mr. Chris Perkins for sharing your time and expertise. And I know our listeners are also grateful as well. I hope audience members will plug into our work here at the Rainey Center by subscribing to our newsletter and following us on social media. Our Twitter handles at Rainey Center. And also check out our website at www.rainycenter.com. .org, where you can also reach us for individual um, requests. Just reach out anytime. Drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening again. And until next time, be well.